Welcome to welcome to the 1000 Day Sober Podcast. My name is Lee Davy. I am not an alcoholic. I refuse to be anonymous. I am alcohol-free as fuck. I am someone who lives a self-led life, and I try to help people be exactly the same. Ah, Stan, let's do that all over again. <laughs> welcome to the 1000 Day Sober Podcast. My name is, of course, Lee Davy. I am not an alcoholic. I refuse to be anonymous. I am alcohol-free as fuck. I live a self-led life, and I spend every waking moment of that life trying to help other people do the same through our Strive Life After Alcohol community and our strive for men community okay so how is everybody doing i hope you're all well um what am i doing well the girls are back they're back they're in cardiff uh they spent three weeks in california so i've had six weeks alone so that was really cool and dandy and the girls are back now and just really getting back into the swing of things uh it's uh it's quite a transition being alone uh, and then being um, around the two people who are likelier to trigger me than any anyone else in life. Isn't it true how that works, that those that are closest to you are the ones that activate pressure buttons, um, open the gate wide for your inner child to stroll out of the prison? Like, it always is uh, the case, right? And I, I really like Alain de Boiton's theory on this from the school of life where he says uh, uh this often happens because we love those the closest to us so much we're willing to show them the worst parts of us because we don't fear that they will abandon us <laughs> kind of like that uh, so yeah uh navigating the triggers um on, and getting used to having a uh a joint nervous system in the house with my daughter and my my wife azia is uh just learned to ride a bike so that's pretty cool she's not completely on her own wheels yet but she's got the balance side of it uh done so really proud of her on that score organizing a birthday party uh, liza's got her birthday coming up as well and then on the 15th of october i'm off to riga in latvia going to be doing some tv production work uh over there and then i fly from riga to Monte Carlo, where I'll be in Monte Carlo until the early part of November, working at the Triton Poker Series and continuing to create our documentary, which I'm really, really excited about. And it's really pushing me towards my edge and, and challenging me. Um, I'll give a few shout outs today, if that's okay with you lovely people. I want to just congratulate Nikki. Nikki is new to Strive. And what I love about it is it's, it's easy to be new to Strive and then kind of hide in the shadows, so to speak. But Nikki hasn't done that. She's new, but she's like really got out there front and center, got involved in the quest, got involved in the community. And she just navigated her way through the tough phase of the law of emergence quest. Uh, so she gets 10 clarity points for that, celebrating you wildly, Nikki. Well done for doing that. Very brave of you. I want to celebrate Susie uh, twice, uh, once. Uh, it's her fourth Strive birthday. Uh, so congratulations. Uh, we love having you here. There is not a community without the people who stick around for a long time and pass down what they've learned other people. So I love you for that, Susie. Thank you very much. And also special well done to Susie for navigating her first sober holiday in Yonks. All right. So I just want to put that out there and say that amazing 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 you've worked really hard to get to this point Susie and just celebrating you every day I want to say a big uh, whoop whoop 
to Sarah for stepping up into a full Strive subscription and getting herself out there into live meetings and really doing something about growth and development. Uh, so well done, Sarah. Recognize you in that. And also, if you want to take advantage of Strive, we are currently offering a free month. So you'll get to experience our wonderful community. You'll be able to um, get involved in as many quests as you can cram in in a month in our Strive method. And you'll be able to take advantage of our group coaching calls uh, held by yours truly uh, every week. So if you want to get involved in that, then uh, just email me at strivemethod.gmo.com and I'll tell you how to do that. And just celebrating G who's uh, just taken advantage of that offer and is currently in Discord. I don't know if you're listening to this podcast, G, but if you do, welcome, okay? So we are going to continue our very special series where I am unpacking my journey towards alcohol reliance from birth uh, using the guided framework of Eric Erickson's psychosocial stages, okay? Uh, the previous episode, episode two, delved into my early years and the dance between industry and inferiority, okay? And today, we're going to focus on my turbulent adolescence. We're going to focus on the ages 10 to 16, and that is captured by Erickson's fifth stage of psychosocial uh, development, which is identity versus role confusion, okay? So get ready for an intimate look at how this period shaped my complex relationship with alcohol. Have a quick sip of my water. So let's start with uh, chapter one, I guess, a new beginning, a new struggle, the emotional quake of Ogmovale. <clears throat> At the age of 10, a seismic shift shattered the foundations of my life. I was living in Reddish, a bustling town where I had known the pitches and playgrounds like the back of my hand. I had just been on cloud nine, having won the Player of the Year award in the Junior Football League for my team, 7th Reddish. And for the first time, because of the accolade, I actually started to feel seen, heard, and above all, important. My team, it was more than just a group of kids kicking a ball around. We were a band of brothers, and I really felt like I belonged. And my coach was a special person as well. He wasn't merely an instructor. He was more of a mentor who really understood the language of my dreams. Football wasn't just a game to me. It was the vibrant tapestry where my identity was intricately woven. But then, with the swift devastation of a wrecking ball, we moved 200 miles away to Ogmo Vale in South Wales. And for those of you that don't know, South Wales is a different country to England. There were goodbyes. My coach laid on a ceremony where I got a beautiful card and a signed football uh, from all my teammates, but I really didn't get any closure. And it's there's an argument there as to whether I still have. I didn't want to leave, and my parents, consumed by their own struggles and limitations, really couldn't fathom the emotional wreckage that this caused to me, and I'm sure my three sisters. Uh, to them, it was just a logistical operation, devoid of the psychological weight that it carried for a 10-year-old. Imagine just for a moment being uprooted from everything you've known and cherished, your first true friendships severed, your nascent dreams crushed, and your sense of belonging ripped apart. I had no choice in this monumental shift, no say in a decision 
that would define my formative years. I was a leaf in a tempest, no control, just a silent scream against the wind. Arriving in Ogmovale, the atmosphere was stifling. It was foreign, almost alien. I didn't know if the people there even played football, and that scared me. There was an overwhelming sense of not belonging, a strangeness I couldn't shake off. School was about to start, secondary school for the first time for me, and I was petrified. And this was not just a mere child's fear. It was an initiation into traumatic anxiety. Erickson's framework would term this as, is, play this again, Stan. Erickson's framework would term this as extreme role confusion. My identity, barely taking shape, was disintegrated by the move. As a 10-year-old, I lacked the emotional vocabulary and the safe spaces to articulate this disarray. My parents, unequipped to navigate these complex emotional terrains, unintentionally left me to fend for myself. It's crucial to understand that such profound emotional disruptions don't just dissipate. They entrench themselves deep within the psyche and the body. These suppressed traumas and unresolved emotions manifest in insidious ways throughout one's life. I didn't know it then, but my body was a ticking time bomb, stockpiling these emotional wounds that would later drive me towards the numbing embrace of alcohol. So this wasn't just a move. It was a profound emotional earthquake, a psychological rupture that would reverberate throughout my life. I was unwittingly thrust. Do this again, Stan. I was unwittingly thrust into a world where I'd eventually seek solace and escape through substances. This journey to Ogmo Vale wasn't just 200 miles. It was a passage into a labyrinth of role confusion, identity crisis, and emotional voids. A labyrinth I'd spend years trying to navigate. This experience has been a cornerstone in my lifelong quest for self-led living, steering me into a path of recovery and eventually into the community we now know as Strive. So as we discuss this stage of identity versus role confusion, remember that it's more than just a theory. It's a lived reality, a chapter in the tapestry of experiences that make me, and perhaps even you, who we or you are today. Chapter two. Lost in translation, the dual strains of cultural fracture and unwanted nationalism. Upon arriving in Ogmovale, not only was I stripped of the football dreams and friendships that had defined me, but I was also plunged into a quagmire of identity, both ethnic and national, that I couldn't escape. At the cherubic age of 10, my emotional toolbox was woefully under-equipped for the task of decoding culture or ethnicity. Until now, I hadn't even really thought about my half Chinese heritage, but suddenly it was as if I wore it like an invisible coat, visible only to those who wanted to use it against me. The classroom felt like a battleground, a place where I was relentlessly othered. Even the school teachers who designated guardians of the young mind gave me nicknames rooted in my Chinese ancestry. In a sea of faces that shared no feature with me, I was an island marked by ridicule and isolation. While my classmates navigated the regular trials of childhood, I wrestled with the emotional Gordian knot of shame, humiliation, and internalized self-loathing. Parallel to this ethnic battleground was a newfound unsought pride in being English. My understanding of nationalism was elementary at best, but it was complicated by the inflamed xenophobia that seemed to engulf me 
when they arrived in Wales. The Welsh kids despised the English for no reason except for this is the way we do things around here. It was illogically insane. And even today, I become triggered if someone is not making sense to me. And I believe this behavior has roots here. The irony wasn't lost on me either. Here I was, half Chinese and half English, castigated for both, yet fully belonging to neither. Somehow, the disdain aimed at my English side morphed into a counterintuitive yet fervent nationalism. What was an object of mockery became a perverse badge of honor. It was as if my young mind were desperately clinging to any semblance of identity it could claim as its own. Ericsson would likely classify these struggles as part of the identity versus role confusion stage, intensified by the incongruent facets of my own identity. I was caught in a dissonant dance between despising and celebrating different parts of my heritage, a schism that set the stage for profound internal conflicts later in life. The fracturing of my identity had ramifications far beyond the school walls. It seeped into my understanding of self-worth, my paradigms on trust, and even my future relationships. This jarring experience set the stage for the subsequent emotional chaos that would manifest in various destructive behaviors, including my path towards alcohol as a coping mechanism. <clears throat> this identity crisis didn't exist in a vacuum. It fueled a sense of mistrust in people that would be both pervasive and enduring. After all, if the adults and peers who were supposed to guide me could subject me to such emotional torment, who could be trusted? It was a lesson learned too early. People can hurt, stereotype, and cast you aside. So by the time adulthood arrived, this mistrust had calcified into a defensive mechanism, reinforcing the barriers I would place between myself and the world, thereby exacerbating feelings of isolation and loneliness. You see, at age 10, your emotional wiring is far from complete, but the circuits you laid down are formative. These experiences didn't just ignite my role confusion, they poured gasoline on it. I was a bundle of contradictions, ashamed of being half Chinese, yet fiercely proud of being English, and universally mistrustful of everyone around me. This was a paradoxical blend of emotions and allegiances that I could neither understand nor articulate. The toxicity of these early experiences found its outlet in unhealthy coping mechanisms, like the numbing embrace of alcohol that offered an escape, albeit a fleeting one, from the labyrinthine complexities of identity and belonging. This period was not merely a chapter in my life, but a prologue to the lifelong journey towards self-led living, recovery, and coaching. It serves as a raw testament to the enduring impact of early life experiences and how they can shape or misshape us in ways that take years to comprehend fully. Chapter three, a material mirage, the Christmas that shattered illusions and a financial web that tangled me. Christmas holds unique power for kids. For a brief moment, the world is a winter wonderland filled with warmth and gifts a cocoon where stresses melt away and everyone is swept up in joy. For a 10-year-old still grappling with the disorientating upheaval of a recent move, that first Christmas in Ogmore Vale was supposed to be an oasis, a kind of pause button on life's rapid and confusing changes. But instead, it became a painful revelation, a glaring mirror that reflected not just my family's financial struggles, but also my desperate yearning to belong, to be, quote-unquote, normal. 
I remember that Christmas in pixelated heart-wrenching detail. The TV shows were epic, no school loomed on the horizon, and the air was tinged with holiday excitement, and yet there was only one gift under our tree. A jarring contrast to the cornucopia of wrapped boxes that seemed to flood my classmates' living rooms. When your 10-year-old psyche is still in the process of understanding the world and your place in it, you don't really empathize with your parents' financial struggles. You can't, not when you see them splurge on cigarettes and alcohol. In your young eyes, it's a clear sign of skewed priorities, a declaration that your happiness is not really worth the investment. And this lack of material abundance only deepened my sense of exclusion in an environment where I was already other due to my mixed ethnicity. Let's do this again, Stan. This lack of material abundance only deepened my sense of exclusion in an environment where I was already other due to my mixed ethnicity and Mancunian accent. My classmates sported branded clothes. Their homes seemed to burst with gifts during the holidays. Whether it was a collective display of codependency, I couldn't tell, but the message was clear. I was different and not in a way that anyone celebrated. Eric Erickson's theories come alive in glaring technicolor in this chapter of my life. Stuck in the identity versus role confusion stage, the palpable sense... Do this again, Stan. <clears throat> Eric Erickson's theories come alive in glaring technicolor in this chapter of my life. Stuck in the identity versus role confusion stage, the palpable lack of control over my finances and my inability to fit in contributed to a profound sense of role confusion. My self-worth became intricately tied to material possessions, a facade I mistook for identity. And it's here that the seeds for future alcohol reliance were sown. Unable to wrest control of my financial narrative or attain social acceptance, alcohol became the great equalizer, a salve that momentarily erased inadequacies and complexities. And this penchant for external validation and material value had far-reaching consequences, even in my adult life. As a father, I found myself on the other end of the cycle, indulging my children excessively and diving into debt, as if material abundance could shield them, or perhaps rectify my past deprivations. This approach also seeped into my marriage, where financial conversations turned into emotional landmines. Unable to navigate discussions about money without explosive reactions, I inadvertently strained my relationships with the woman I have loved in my life. For someone who's battled for a sense of self, identity is no longer a luxury. It becomes a compulsive necessity, much like the alcohol that would later offer me a retreat from these spiraling complexities. My life became an echo chamber of stress, inadequacy, and relational strain, all roads leading back to alcohol as a coping mechanism. And this story isn't just about one Christmas or a pair of branded trainers that eluded me. It's about the ripple effects of those early deeply etched experiences my inability to feel a sense of control in my early years left a lasting imprint that would inform my relationships and self-worth and my approach to coaching and helping others regain control of their lives. It's a cautionary tale, yet one filled with lessons some learned far too late, but all indispensable in the journey towards living a more conscious self-led life. Chapter four, the spotlight paradox. Our quest for validation spawned dualities of grandiosity and frailty. From the fringes of invisibility to the harsh glare of notoriety, 
my journey in my adolescence years was nothing short of a roller coaster ride. Straddled between the need for acceptance and an emerging sense of individuality, I became a chameleon, morphing into versions of myself designed solely to please the crowd. I thrived on the gaps of disbelief and applause. The louder the reaction, the brighter I shone. And this magnetism for attention reached ahead when I was chosen for the role of Artful Dodger in the school production of Oliver Twist. Once I was lauded for my uniqueness, my distinct flair and audacity were my crowning jewels, and as I basked in the spotlight, a newfound notion seeped in. I was special. On the football field, too, my skills outshone my insecurities. For those ephemeral 90 minutes, Stan, let's do that again. On the football field, too, my skills outshone my insecurities. For those ephemeral 90 minutes, my feet were deft, my instincts sharp, I was a marvel, and people saw me as one. Somewhere between the cheers of the crowd and the thrill of the game, a subtle transformation began. What could have been a healthy sense of self-worth veered dangerously towards grandiosity, even narcissism. This warping of my self-perception was a double-edged sword, an intoxicating yet volatile mix of arrogance and insecurity. Erickson's theory of psychosocial development fits eerily well here. His stage of identity versus role confusion doesn't just envelop the angsty years of adolescence, it illuminates them. Craving for social... Let's do this again, Stan. <clears throat> Craving for social validation, I was willing to discard my genuine self to adopt roles, effectively bypassing my authentic identity to become a patchwork of expectations and projections. In this identity vacuum, the seeds of future alcohol reliance were further nurtured, Alcohol became my liquid courage, a quick fix for bridging the gap between the me I projected and the me I hid away. This liquid lie allowed me to perpetuate the facade, masking my insecurities and magnifying my grandiosity. My need to be the center of attention wasn't without its fallout. This self-centered focus was a survival mechanism that came at a high relational cost. Whether it was intimate relationships or careers, control issues and a failure to connect with others genuinely began manifesting. I became what you'd call an unconscious follower, a term that captures the paradox of seeking leadership through attention, yet lacking self-directed purpose or authenticity. Both my wives had called me selfish, and while that label stung, I couldn't help but wonder if the roots of this selfishness lay in those formative years when survival demanded a self-centric worldview. The irony is again undeniable. In chasing external validation, I compromised internal harmony. In fighting to be seen, I became increasingly blind to the needs and feelings of those around me. The loud applause from my performances on stage and on the football field started to drown out the softer, more crucial conversations that formed the backbone of meaningful relationships. My relentless pursuit of the spotlight led to a life script riddled with contradictions, moments of brilliance overshadowed by glaring blind spots. Let's do that again, Stan. My relentless pursuit of the spotlight led to a life script riddled with contradictions, moments of brilliance overshadowed by glaring blind spots, a labyrinth of self-imposed traps and roadblocks. These tendencies weren't merely phases. They transformed into entrenched patterns. In seeking to be the center of attention, I strayed further away from the role of compassionate listener, partner, or friend. 
It's a web of complexities, a tangle of needs and desires that have both propelled me forward and held me back. Even today, as I strive to live a self-led life, conscious life, the residues, let me do that again, Stan. Even today, as I strive to live a self-led conscious life, the residues of this tumultuous period serve as both cautionary tales and building blocks, reminding me of the intricate dance between vulnerability and bravado, between needing to be seen and learning to see. Chapter five, the battle within, navigating the tumultuous waters of violence, masculinity, and control. As a child, the scars I bore were not just physical, they were deep emotional trenches carved out by years of violence and an acute need for external validation. From brawls that left me broken to pervasive mental strife, I lived on a battleground, locked in a perpetual combat. Ironically, my desperation for approval manifested as aggression, an explosive cocktail of verbal, intellectual, and physical force. It's as if violence became my twisted language of survival, a dialect taught in the schoolyard, but never left behind. The fights were visceral, and the bruises left on my body were mirrored by the internal fractures that nobody could see. David Dada, an American author, speaker, and spiritual teacher, who explores the intersection of masculinity, femininity, spirituality, and human relationships, would argue that the masculine essence inherently shuns control. My attempts to break free manifests in a chaotic spiral of aggression and domination. No male role model had shown me how to navigate this instinct healthily, leaving me grasping for control in a world that constantly felt like it was spiraling out. Contrary to what one might think, the moments leading up to a fight were excruciating, permeated by an overwhelming sense of dread and fear. Yet once the first punch landed, something switched off. Pain took a backseat. My father's influence here is ambiguous. He inadvertently taught me the grit to withstand physical punishment. He was the one who told me to fight back. But there's a paradoxical resilience embedded in that toughness, a fortitude that became instrumental when conquering my addictions later in life. But the cost of my father's education was steep. The shame and embarrassment cast long shadows. There was shame in defeat, in the dread of facing an impending fight, and in the confessions to my parents. And let's not forget the shameful realization that I had turned into the very thing I despised, a bully. When triggered by my loved ones, I feel that latent monster rearing its head, ready to defend a wounded ego even today. It's no surprise that Erickson's psychosocial stages, particularly the crisis between identity versus role confusion, resonate deeply here. In its rawest form, fighting was my misguided attempt to carve out an identity, to transform from prey to paradise. Do this again, Stan. In its rawest form, fighting was my misguided attempt to carve out an identity, to transform from prey to predator. However, this aggressive persona was merely another role I took on, yet again dodging the responsibility of forging a stable identity. The bullying, the fighting, the intoxicating allure of alcohol, they all served as external constructs to prop up an internally fragmented self. In Dr. Caroline Elliott's book, Existential King, she posits that the provoc Let's do this again, Stan. In Dr. Caroline Elliott's book, Existential King, 
She posits the provocative theory. Do this again, Stan. In Dr. Caroline Elliott's existential kink, she posits the prov. <laughs> can't say it. In Dr. Caroline Elliott's existential kink, she proposes the provocative theory that we derive a twisted pleasure from the very things causing us pain and suffering. My wife Liza has often asserted that I am a pit bull, that I actually like fighting with her. While my initial responses was to vehemently deny it, upon reflection, I think she's right. The physical and verbal confrontations I engaged in did earn me a modicum of respect from my peers, momentarily catapulting me into the spotlight and releasing me from the oppressive weight of perceived control. Yet this sense of self-worth gained through external validation was fleeting and could never offer long-lasting peace. There were instances when I threw myself into these skirmishes, not out of genuine pursuit for justice, but in a calculated gamble to gain approval through the defeat of a formidable foe. These fights were less about me than they were a proxy war waged on the social battlefield, where triumphs were quantified not in personal growth, but in a fickle currency of peer esteem. Now, as I journey through the landscape of self-reflection, it's clear how essential it is to approach every facet of myself with love and compassion. This aligns with internal family systems therapy, which teaches us that we have various parts of subpersonalities that need attention, exception. Let's do that again, Stan. This aligns with internal family systems therapy, which teaches us that we have various parts or subpersonalities that need attention, acceptance, and integration. The bully, the fighter, and the survivor are not enemies lurking within me. They're parts of me, each with a unique story and intention to protect me somehow. These aspects of myself are fragments of a greater whole, and they manifest as reactions to the external world, whether it's seeking validation or establishing control. According to IFS theory, I need to act as the self, capital S, which acts like a compassionate inner leader, providing guidance and balance to these parts. I now understand that the real battle for identity isn't fought in the schoolyard, the boxing rings, or even the arenas of social approval. Instead, it's a deeply internal struggle occurring in the complex corridors of my mind, my body, and my soul. Recognizing this, I no longer aim to leave any part of myself behind as if it's disposable. That would be an act of self-rejection and perpetuate the cycle of external validation. Instead, my focus is on the compassionate integration of these different parts, which includes acknowledging their purpose while guiding them towards healthier means of expression. And this is how the shadows lurking in my unconscious mind can be acknowledged, appreciated, and integrated into a coherent, authentic, self-led life. By loving all parts of myself, even those that I once despised or wanted to disown, I am laying down the groundwork for a life that is not reliant on external circumstances for validation or happiness. I am actively... Do this again, Stan. I am actively... Do it again, Stan. I am, active... I am actively choosing to be self-led, to be the nurturing manager of my internal family, steering each part towards harmony and wholeness. This ongoing process isn't just about self-improvement. It's about self-liberation freeing me from the constraints of societal expectations and old survival mechanisms. And in doing so, I am carving out the path for a more conscious, integrated, and fulfilling existence. 
Understanding this has been pivotal in reshaping my approach towards life, relationships, and personal development. It emphasizes the necessity of taming those primal instincts for control and aggression in favor of empathy, understanding, and true strength, the qualities that truly define a man. Chapter 6. Navigating the Labyrinth of Adolescent Love, Unrequited Feelings, and Self-Esteem In the tempestuous landscape of adolescence, love and infatuation occupied a significant terrain. For me, the experience of a romantic rejection served as another blow to an already fragile self-esteem, further perpetuating my reliance on external validation. This early emotional turbulence laid the groundwork for rushed marriages and a series of relationship problems that trailed into my adult years, persisting as part of the complex tapestry that is my life. Between the tender ages of 10 and 16, I really believed that I was deeply in love three times. Who knows, maybe it was just mere infatuation, but at the time it felt real enough. Only one of these infatuations matured into a relationship leaving the other two episodes culminating in the bitter gall of disappointment. My affection for the two unattainable objects of my desire bordered on the obsessive, and while I can't say for certain whether such intensity was normal for someone undergoing the biological changes intrinsic to that age, the heartbreak resulting from their friend zoning me was undeniable. In my youthful interpretation, their rejection signified that I was ugly, adding another layer of injury to my already abused so do this again stan in my youthful interpretation their rejection signified that i was ugly adding another layer of injury to my already bruised self-esteem i was obstinate however in my quest for love an indomitable part of me vowed to do whatever it took to capture the affection of these two girls a resolute never giving attitude regrettably None of my youthful relationships were either healthy or respectful. This period of my life was a volatile cocktail of adolescent hormones and misconceptions about intimacy, largely influenced by watching my father show complete lack of respect for my mom and my early exposure to pornography. To me, sex seemed to be more of a sprint to the end than a collaborative journey. These distortions became life lessons in humility and vulnerability that I've had to unlearn and continue consciously working on today. Alcohol only exacerbated the complexity of my teenage years. Its entrance into my life, coupled with adolescent fervor, led to rampant promiscuity amongst my friends and me. The collective aim was pretty straightforward. Get shit-faced, find a partner, have sex. And this troubling pattern began at just 14 when I lost my virginity. And it continued to the moment I swore off alcohol at the age of 35. And if you think 14 is young, I only lost my virginity because people like us do things like this. All my friends were doing the same thing. Whenever I had sober, intimate encounters, they were marred by a spectrum of sexual dysfunctions, challenges I continue to grapple with today. It's also worth mentioning that throughout this crazy experience, I never wore a condom, and in discussions with my friends, neither did they. Coupled with the alcohol-fueled sex, it's amazing that more of us didn't become teenage parents or have a variety of STDs. To place this within Eric Erickson's develop, do this again, Stan. 
To place this within Eric Erickson's developmental framework, my experience is closely aligned with the identity versus role confusion stage. This phase usually coincides with adolescence, where the primary task is to forge a coherent self-identity. Failing to do so leads to role confusion, and as a fractured sense of self, outcomes evident in my tangled web of relationships and emotional hardships. Similarly, these dynamics are captured by the concept of the liquid lie, a term I coined to describe the fallacy that alcohol fills the voids in our lives. In seeking the warmth of external validation through alcohol, sexual conquest, and ephemeral romantic dalliances, I unknowingly imbibed the liquid lie. It promised to dissolve my insecurities and offer illusory control of my narrative, only to deliver chaos and magnify my internal discord. Today, I recognize the imperativeness of drawing validation from an internal reservoir, a lesson gleaned through years of introspection and self-work. It's an ongoing process, a conscious effort to break the chain of my past and venture into a self-led life. To fully understand oneself, acknowledge all aspects, even the flaws, and choose which parts to integrate into a truly authentic self. Chapter 6. Drowning Sorrows and the Snare of the Liquid Lie. A journey through misspent youth. The road to alcohol reliance often starts under the guise of youthful rebellion or the hollow promise of momentary euphoria. By the age of 14, I had my first taste of alcohol, a seemingly magical elixir that promised to make everything better. Two years later, my drinking habits spiraled way out of control, a behavior society often glorifies as normal, nice, noble, natural, and necessary. However, I was experiencing the liquid lie, a toxic illusion that significantly amplified my pre-existing identity crisis and role confusion, themes well explored in Eric Erickson's develop. Do that again, Stan. Themes well explored in Eric Erickson's developmental stages. At the tender age of 14, my father played an instrumental role in normalizing this dysfunctional relationship with alcohol when he took my friend and me to a pub and encouraged us both to order a pint. The barman complied, handing over the pint with a complicit smile. And this seemingly insignificant act solidified a connection with my dad, an emotional bond that had been largely absent from my life. I felt seen heard and that I mattered to him for the first time. However, what this really represented was a pernicious rite of passage. Let's do this again, Stan. However, what this really represented was a pernicious rite of passage. Parents never warned us about the dangers of alcohol, perhaps because such advice would be inherently hypocritical given their own habits. And I do harbor the belief that part of the liquid lie is that adults normalize underage drinking with their children because in a way it helps normalize the reasons why they themselves drink a powerfully poisonous drug that kills 3.3 million people a year. When I was 15, my friends and I concocted a wonderful plan. We filled a soda bottle with a mix of spirits, each contributing to this lethal cocktail thinking that our parents wouldn't notice if we took a little bit out of each bottle. I drank more than everyone else, fueled by this quest to belong and to feel alive. The morning after, I woke up sprawled on a football field, vomiting uncontrollably, soaked in dew, 
a vivid manifestation of the liquid lie at play. In the community where I grew up, underage drinking was an unwritten rule rather than an exception. Bars were often filled with children mixing with adults, a jarring normalization of underage alcohol consumption. At 15, my parents went away and left me in control of the house, and I hosted a epic house party that quickly turned chaotic. I seized the opportunity to invite everyone I knew, and even friends of my parents came in and mingled with the younger crowd. Eventually, the police and ambulance were called, and I woke up next to a puddle of vomit, and I was fortunate to have slept on my side. My football prowess caught the eye of a local adult Sunday league team. I was only 14 or 15 when I joined. Their acceptance provided a form of validation I had craved. They supplied me with alcohol, invited me to parties that no teenager had any business attending. During this time, I also smoked weed for the first time. And this level of attention from older individuals began a 20-year affair with alcohol that went largely unquestioned. By the time I was 16, my priorities had shifted so dramatically that I chose to leave school to work, primarily to fund my growing addiction. My parents never intervened or engaged in meaningful conversations about my future, further embedding my misplaced sense of identity. And according to Erickson's stages of psychosocial development, my experiences squarely fit into the identity versus role confusion stage, a period fraught with questions about personal identity and direction in life. My failure to adequately navigate this stage would later impact the subsequent intimacy versus isolation stage. An unsettled identity and ongoing role confusion prevented me from forming healthy, intimate relationships, a problem that would reverberate through my adult years. And as I reflect upon those times, the liquid lie emerges as a pervasive force that trapped me in a self-destructive cycle. It provided false solutions to my complex emotional challenges and its insidious nature can't be underestimated. Confronting the liquid lie has been a crucial part of my journey towards a self-led life. One where I don't just survive, but I genuinely thrive. Chapter seven, a final word, the lingering impact of adolescence and the power of conscious choices. As we conclude this emotional odyssey through the complexities of my adolescence, and I eventually get my voice back, it's worth taking a moment to appreciate how formative these years are, years are for every individual. Let's do that again, Stan. As we conclude this emotional odyssey through the complexities of my adolescence, and I finally get my voice back, it's worth taking a moment to appreciate how formative these years are for every individual. Erickson's psychosocial framework offers an invaluable lens to make sense of these turbulent times. The patterns established during this pivotal stage can become deeply ingrained, shaping our behaviors and choices for years to come. In my case, the unresolved issues of identity and role confusion led me down the slippery path of alcohol reliance and the experience of a life mired in victim consciousness. But it's crucial to recognize that this story, although intentional personal to me, isn't unique. The underlying themes resonate universally, echoing the broader human condition that we all grapple with. Struggles, let's do that again, Stan. Struggles of identity, belonging, love, and the search for meaning. These universal experiences and longings become pivotal intersections in our lives, impacting the trajectories we follow for better or for worse. Understanding these moments through Erickson's framework not only offers a psychological grounding, 
but also serves as a critical first step towards self-awareness and change. And the good news, our stories are not set in stone. We possess the ability to revise the narrative, to make choices that redefine our futures. It's never too late to reset the compass of your life, whether it's breaking free from a liquid lie, working through unresolved identity crises, or consciously choosing relationships to serve us better. Yep, the scars from the past may never fully disappear. They may never fully heal, but they can become less defining as we grow and evolve. And for those of you intrigued by these explorations into the human psyche, remember that the journey doesn't end here. In the next episode, we will delve deeper into how these early life experiences dovetail into adulthood, shaping our relationships, career choices, and ultimately our sense of self. How does one transition from years of turmoil into a fulfilling self-led life? How can we unmask the illusions that we've been conditioned to accept and dismantle the armor that's weighed us down? And most importantly, how can we live consciously in a world that often encourages the opposite? As you go about your week, I really encourage you to reflect on your own life narrative. Question the liquid lie and its grip on your life. Alexa, stop. Let's do that again, Stan. As you go about your week, I encourage you to reflect on your own life narrative. Question the liquid lie and its grip on your life. Examine your own stages of development and the choices you've made at those critical junctures. Are you living a self-led life? Well, if the answer is no, remember it's not too late to start the journey towards self-awareness and transformation. So if you're seeking insights into these compelling human dramas, or you're in the throes of your own existential questioning, you won't want to miss what's coming up. Tune into the next episode where we continue this intricate, fascinating dialogue on self-development and the human condition, all through the lens of my life. Until then, take care of yourselves, and as always, much love, strive on, and try as best as you can to live as consciously as you can. Remember, you are perfectly imperfect. You are whole and you are complete. Much love. Catch you in the next one.